Hi everyone. Today's interview is with author Andrew Solomon. He recently wrote a book called Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. It's a book I've been thinking about and talking about all summer. Andrew spent years interviewing parents who have children who are different from them in some significant way. Children with disabilities, children who are prodigies, children who are criminals. Throughout the course of these interviews, he reflects on the nature of parenting, on the tremendous love that is involved, but in some cases the tremendous heartache that goes along with being bound to a child who's difficult to understand or who's very different from maybe what parents expected. I tried not to gush too much, but I was really honored that Andrew took the time to talk with me. He has quite an impressive resume of books, articles, education, national and international awards. One accomplishment that we talk quite a bit about during this interview is his own family. Andrew and his husband, John, have a three-year-old son, George, who lives with them full-time. George's surrogate mother is also the mother of John's two other biological children. Andrew has a daughter with a college friend who lives in Texas. So it's five parents of four children in three states. In his interview, Andrew talks about the ways that parenting has changed him, and he reflects on his hopes for his own family. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. First of all, I wanted to tell you how much I really enjoyed your your most recent book, Far From the Tree. As a psychologist and as a mother, it, it just touched me on so many levels. And I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to do that. It sounds like it was quite an endeavor. It was quite an endeavor, but thank you for saying that. It means a great deal to me to have readers responding to it so warmly. I wonder if you would start by telling me a little bit about your family. So my husband and I met in 2001 when I was on tour for my previous book. And so we've been together for a little more than 12 years now. And uh, we got married in 2007 in England, where uh, the ceremony was called a civil partnership that was legally identical to marriage. Um, And then because we wanted to use the word marriage, we married again in the United States uh, in Connecticut in 2009. He is the biological father of two children with some lesbian friends in Minneapolis, um, Oliver and Lucy, um, who are now nine and um, uh, uh, 13. And I'm the biological father of a daughter um, with one of my oldest friends, a friend from college who had gone through a divorce but wanted to have a family, and we agreed we'd love to do that together. And then... uh, So mother and daughter live in Texas, but we see them a lot. And then John and I have one child who lives with us full time, of whom I am the biological father. And uh, Laura, the lesbian mother of John's two biological children, was our surrogate. So a modern family. very modern family (laughs) altogether. It sounds like you probably rack up a lot of frequent flyer miles. We, yes, are very strong on both racking them up and using them. <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, the shorthand is five parents of four children in three states. And um, 
it sounds like a sort of radical and modern set of arrangements. I didn't feel that way as we were doing it. It felt as we were doing yeah. it simply like we wanted to have children and um, we wanted to have a family and this is the way it unfolded and, and evolved. Hmm. Yeah, when you see it on paper, it probably sounds one way, but then when you think about those individuals and, and those lives and your life with them, it's, it's your family. Exactly. What have you enjoyed most about being a father? What are your favorite moments? Um, you know, I've loved being a father altogether. Uh, people said, oh, it'll be the central experience of your life, and indeed it is. Um, I would say that I have loved the, the authenticity of affection that I think there is with small children who are not yet... Um, uh, guileful enough to uh to lie or alter what they feel i've loved the return to um children's books and the intimacy that's come out of sharing those stories i've loved the funny things that they say i remember when george was two and we were sitting at dinner one night and i said now come on george eat your asparagus remember asparagus makes you big and strong and he said daddy asparagus makes me small and sad um, <laughs> so I feel like we've had over um, a time this sort of sense of being able to talk to them. And um, I loved the experience uh, more abstractly of seeing how a life begins in the world and how someone goes from being a nonverbal um, sort of mewling infant to being a, a recognizable person. I... I've loved the caretaking. I think before it happened, I thought that the caretaking would be very burdensome. And there are certainly days when I don't feel like doing it. But by and large, what I felt is that the the caretaking and the and the energy that it takes are part of the process of bonding and that doing that has been essential. I've loved the feeling with my husband that we're in this project together and that it gives us a focus for our energies beyond each other. Uh, there's so much that I've loved in it. Um, I just, I found it joyous and I find the children themselves joyous and I now can't really imagine how my life would have gone without them. Yeah. In preparing to write Far From the Tree, you spent countless hours interviewing families who are going through some really incredibly painful things. Um, but I, I got the sense that you put a lot of thought into deciding to become a parent. And I guess I'm wondering what has surprised you? What have you been unprepared for despite all of that thought? Well, I'll answer that a little obliquely and say that people thought when I said that I was writing this book that it was incredible that I was going to have children uh, given the darkness there was in many of these stories. But my feeling was that I was writing a book not about everything that could go wrong, but about how much love there could be even when everything does go wrong. And I think the book galvanized me for parenthood by making me think if all of these people could love all of these children with all of these enormous challenges, then I think I'm going to do fine on building an emotional relationship with my own children. So that was really the energizing aspect of it. As far as actually having um, children and the surprises and how they relate to the book, I think as I worked on the book, I tended to think that a lot of these parents who said, I have a child who has all these problems, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I so love my child seemed implausible to me when I began. And as I went along, I thought, oh, actually, I see one does love one's child. One does love the child one has been given. 
whether one's child has flaws or doesn't have flaws. I feel like the thing that surprised me is how quickly one understands that one's child is one's identity and that one's connection to that child is permanent. It was it was sooner and it was stronger than I had anticipated. Hmm. There's a sense that your life is never going to be the same again. It certainly is never going to be the same again. But I think a lot of the time people say that thing about sort of, oh, you'll have children and your life will never be the same again. And expectant parents um, or people contemplating parenthood hear it as a threat. I think, but I like my life. And what do you mean it'll never be the same again? The thing is, it will never be the same again, but you actually don't mind it's not being the same again. Um, You think, oh, and it's an adjustment. I mean, I think in the first months of his life, I did feel like, okay, but I have to be with the baby all the time, but I have other stuff I want to do and that I need to do, and how can I reconcile all of it? But relatively quickly, I got to the point of thinking, well, so I can't do all those things I used to do, but I have these other things, and at the moment, these other things are what I'd rather be doing. So your life changes, but you don't mind that it changes. That's the thing that I don't think everyone understands. And I think people think of that as schedule, right? You're not going to sleep much anymore and you're going to wear frumpy clothes. Like they, they think about it as these external things. And I think many of the conversations I've had for this project have really helped me to understand how much that never the same again is an interior experience. Yes. That your heart, your heart is different. Your soul is different. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think the love that you have for your um, uh, your children is like no other feeling in the world. And until you have children, you don't know what it's like. That's something my mother used to say to me. And I used to have slightly mixed feelings about it when she said it. But now that I have children, I believe that it's true. I just think you don't know until you're there. And then once you're there, you know, of course, there's the scheduling stuff. And I mean, there's incredible tedium and changing of diapers and all kinds of other stuff. I'm not saying that just glory and joy all the time. But the overall feeling of attachment is so unbelievably powerful uh, hmm. that I think in a way it almost it becomes the, the ruling emotion of one's life. Yeah. How has fatherhood changed you in maybe some deeper ways? Anything in addition to what we've been talking about? Well, I think fatherhood has made me slow down on some of the other things that I'm doing. I think I was very focused on work. I'm still very focused on work, but sort of less so. Um, I think that becoming a father allowed me to recover from any issues I had with my own childhood. There were, I basically had lovely parents, but there were various things I felt they'd done wrong. And I used to be quite critical about that. And once I became a father, I thought, this is hard and they did their best and they really did a good job, all things considered. So it's been a very forgiving experience in that regard, forgiving of my parents and to some degree of the world. I just thought we all have a lot of struggle to become who we are. And that's part of what life is about. Um, But I also just feel as though, you know, I think of that image at the end of the Grinch stole Christmas when his heart expanded three sizes. um, Mm -hmm. I feel as though there's an expanding of one's heart that happens with, Um, becoming a father and I feel more sensitive to the to the suffering in the world more focused on wanting to make a better and brighter world because I would like a better and brighter world for my children to live in I I feel like I mean I've always been someone who worried about the future and who planned but I feel as though becoming a father has given me a more profound sense of responsibility not only about my own child but um, uh, but about the world and I just I feel expanded by it. I think expand is hmm. probably the best word. That's a great image. 
some of the parents I've talked with for this project have talked about how their view of God or sense of spirituality has changed with becoming parents. Has that been part of your journey? You know, I'm firmly agnostic, um, but I remember when my mother died, being in the room with her and thinking, but it doesn't make any sense. She was here a minute ago. She must have gone somewhere. And I had a moment then of thinking, okay, we don't really understand this, and perhaps we never will and are not capable of doing so, but there's a, a deep mysteriousness attached to it. And I felt the same thing with having a child. I mean, I think to myself about the idea that if we had, you know, fertilized the egg, because of course we did it um, uh, in vitro, but if we had done it sort of a day later, this would there would be a different child and George wouldn't exist. And it's very hard to come to terms with that idea. He seems inevitable now that he's part of the world. I think, how can it be that there were thousands of other combinations of gametes that could have led to thousands of different children instead? And that sense of the profound meaningfulness of that inevitability feels to me like a kind of spiritual journey. I wouldn't exactly say that it gives me a belief in God in any very concrete um, way associated with a particular doctrine. But I think the, the things that are really inexplicable are birth and death. And when I've run up against them, they've given me a great respect for the limits of our knowledge and our inability to understand these things. And I sort of, at some level, do still believe that my mother lives on in one way or another. And I do believe that George was a necessary addition to the world and, um, and Blaney too, and the other children. And so I think I just have a, a passionate feeling of the unknowability of it. I don't know what it is. We don't know, but I know we don't know it. (laughs) And that it's bigger. I I guess the way that you talk about that reminded me of the word transcendence, you know, that, that there is something that's beyond maybe the, but that we, don't know it, but we feel it in these moments around the edges of our lives at the beginning and the end and those moments where we're least in control and least capable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I think that the, the beginning and ending of things, you know, like the beginning and ending of time, it's all very, it's all very highly unknowable. And I think if we want to give, if we want to name that unknowability as God, that's a perfectly fine word to describe it. So I first became acquainted with your work. Um, I think you were interviewed maybe for a PBS documentary about depression. And um, I guess I'm wondering, are there ways that depression has shaped you as a father? Has that been part of your experience since George has joined your home? So in the first place, I think that being depressed was um, was a very humbling experience. And I think humility is a good quality to have as a father. Um, it's a helpful way to begin. It gave me a sense that people are vulnerable um, because I experienced so much vulnerability. So now sometimes if George or Blaney or Oliver or Lucy are having some sort of a meltdown or some sort of a bad moment, I think to myself, yes, but remember 
you fell apart very profoundly in adulthood and remember what it feels like to be falling apart. It doesn't feel so great. And what you need is people to help you through it, not people to tell you to pull yourself together. I mean, sometimes you need people to tell you to pull yourself together. But I feel like I became more empathetic as a result of having had those experiences. And I think they play out uh, now a lot. The downside is that I'm scared that either of my two biological children, George or Blaney, may have inherited this tendency. I feel like we'll be well prepared, we'll know what it is, we'll be able to deal with it more quickly than we were able to deal with my depression, but I still worry that they might ever be affected by it. And I worry that if I became really depressed again, and I still have occasional little episodes, that it would be toxic for them and that they would then feel my kind of drawing back or disappearing from their lives. So there are the concerns around it too. But I hope overall that experience of being depressed made me kinder, and I think kind is a good quality in a dad. Have you talked with George Blaney about that possibility? Well, Lindy is five and George is three, so no, I haven't. So no, okay. But they've seen, I mean, I take antidepressants, and they've seen me taking my pills in the morning, and they've occasionally said, you know, oh, well, I just take these. I, you know, had some problems at one point, and these medicines helped me to stay well. So we haven't discussed it in any detail, but there's a little bit of groundwork laid. It strikes me that you you have your family in a in a time when there's a lot of conversation about what it means to be a family. Um, and it sounds like you've found really supportive communities and, you know, lots of people who honor the kind of family that you have. But I guess I'm wondering how that has impacted your family to have, you know, some pretty brutal comments made in the culture in which you live. Does that seep in? You know, it's irksome to me, for me, um, when people make those disparaging remarks. And I feel as though there are people who seem to think that the existence of my family somehow lessens um, their family, and I don't understand the basis for that. It seems to me that in the same way that we need species diversity to sustain the planet, we need a diversity of kinds of affection and family to sustain the ecosphere of kindness. And I feel as though people who somehow think that my family is an atrocity they're bewildering to me. I think, how can you look at all of us and think that? But when my husband and I uh, had George, we sent out birth announcements, and one of my husband's cousins, who is an evangelical Christian, sent back the birth announcement with a note saying, your lifestyle is against our Christian values, and we wish to have no further contact. And it made me sad. Um, what it mostly makes me sad for is not me, um, but the children. I don't want them to be exposed to that kind of prejudice. I don't want them to have people thinking less of them because of the strange quality of their families or the unusual setup. I hope that we're at a moment in society in which we are moving away from those models of hatred, and I think there are more and more people who are open to and accepting a family such as ours, but there's no question that there are and will always be some people who are opposed to them, and I want to do my best to protect my children from those dark reflections, and I hope my children will then grow up with a sense of pride in where they came from, rather than a sense of embarrassment or pain about it. What do you hold on to when you experience parenting challenges? What one sentence goes through your mind, or one story? What's your mantra? You know, I think a lot about something that happened when we were little, my um, brother could be quite angry, and um, it used to get my mother very upset. And then um, we had someone who 
helped my mother out a little bit with childcare who was there. And David one day said to Veronica, I hate you, I hate you. And Veronica said, that's too bad because I love you. And my mother said it was a real revelation to her. She thought, oh, the response to I hate you, I hate you is not to want to cry, but just to kind of brush it off and go on. And I sort of think of that. I think of when things are getting um, a little bit hairy. I mean, not always successfully, but I think to myself, okay, but these are little children and they're having these things and you're the grown-up. You're the grown-up. If I have to think of a sentence that I hold on to, that would probably be it. You know, and I do genuinely believe that they love me. So it's not ever that I feel as though they don't. I just feel as though they're angry or they're being impossible or whatever it is that's going on. You're currently working on your PhD in psychology? I've actually completed it. I am now. Congratulations. <laughs> does your experience of such in-depth study of psychology, does it make you a little neurotic as a parent? <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm neurotic as a parent, but I'm not sure that's why. Um, <laughs> I think okay. Roses is sort of free-floating. No, I think the work that I did in psychology has actually mostly been helpful because it's allowed me to be more self-aware and it's allowed me to be more profoundly aware of what um, my children are are experiencing and are going through. Um, you know, sure, some of the time, um, John, my husband, will say to me, I'll say, but George just did this and I think it might indicate that. And, you know, what do we think about the quality of the attachment and what do we think about this and that? And John will say, sort of just cool it. He's fine. Don't worry about it. And I'm aware of all of these things. Like when he was very little, I was very aware of all the signposts for autism. And I was constantly thinking, okay, but he did this. Is he possibly developing autism? And John kept saying, he was just tired or it was just a long day. You know, he's now um, uh, four years old and he does not have autism. But I think I'm aware of all of those markers. Um, but I think that I was a sort of slightly neurotic, worrying person in the first place, and that John was a basically buoyant and optimistic person in the first place, and that the balance works pretty well for us and for um, uh, the kids. And so I'm not sure that there's more neurosis introduced. <laughs> Nothing was there otherwise. Right. So when George turns 18 and is ready to go off to college or travel the world or whatever adventure he chooses at that time. What do you hope he says about you? You know, when he's meeting college friends, having left your nest, how do, how do you hope he describes you? I hope he says that he always felt incredibly loved. I hope he says that he always felt that we accepted him for who he was. And I hope he says that we put a lot of energy into helping him to be his best self. Um, I think those are really the essential things that I would want him to say. And I hope he'll say that we laughed a lot and had a really good time together. What do you hope for yourself as a father? Any, I don't know, I guess in a way it's asking the question backwards, but what kind of father do you really want to be? I want to strike a balance between being a father who really teaches a lot, who's strict, who says you have to learn manners, you have to behave properly, you have to work hard at school, and being a father who um, also says just the way you do things is terrific. And I want him to grow up with feelings of enormous self-confidence and, um, and surety. Um, I think that really would be my my focus um, and to make sure that he's, he rises to whatever it is that he's able to do, but isn't pushed toward it in a fashion that's painful for him. 
to scaffold well. Yes, exactly. That's a very good phrase. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I'm stealing it from Lev Vygotsky. <laughs> <laughs> Should cite my sources. Indeed. Uh, thank you, because I was going to cite it to you, and I'll cite it to him instead. But in the footnote, I promise. Okay. Um. Well, that's sort of the end of the formal questions I had to ask you, but I I don't know. I wonder if there's anything else that you want to say or that you feel it's important to talk about when talk about parent, talking about parenting. I guess I really just feel that, uh, you know, I don't think that parenting consists only of love. I think it requires love, but it requires a great deal more than that. It requires thought. It requires philosophy. It requires... Um, uh, insight um, and it requires uh, discipline and clarity too and so I think that the to me parenting is a constant striving not just to do whatever your kid wants because that's always very tempting and I think ultimately it doesn't prepare your child very well for the world but never to be never to act in anger you can feel anger but you should never act in anger um and so how does one manage uh, always to keep that, that balance in place? I think that's the real struggle of parenting. And I feel incredibly lucky that I actually do think, as I know most parents think, but some don't, that my children are really amazing and extraordinary and wonderful. Um, even knowing that lots and lots of parents say that and that lots and lots of parents think that, I still feel um, like mine really are. And I just feel so relieved. I had that concern before they were born. I thought, what if I have children and they turn out to be people I don't like and I have to spend my whole life interacting with them? And then they turn out to be people I absolutely adore. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief on that. So <laughs> that's a piece of it. Yeah, it does require so much more of ourselves. You know, the love, of course, but the discipline, the even just the intelligence and the ability to hold multiple ideas in your mind and manage a schedule. And um, it's, it's amazing that as many kids make it do, I, yes. you know, I feel like it's such a demanding task. Absolutely. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned enjoying returning to children's books with your, with your little ones. What books are you loving? What, what are you reading with them? Well, as the ones from my own childhood, let's see, I've loved um, returning to Winnie the Pooh. We've done a little bit of Alice in Wonderland, though they're still a little bit young for that. So some of those are great classics. Um, I managed to find copies of my two favorite childhood picture books, which were Is That a Happy Hippopotamus by, um, oh, who's it by? Anyway, it was a book I loved as a child and a book called Kangaroo and Kangaroo that I um, was very taken with. It was a picture book. So all of those. And um, then we've read, you know, Julia Donaldson's picture books, and we've been doing the polo series in which there are no words and we have to make up the story as we go along. And what are the others? I feel there are so many. I mean, we've read Make Way for Ducklings, which, of course, I loved as a child. And George is obsessed with construction equipment, so Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel has been a big hit around our house. I've liked some of the Mo Willems books. I think some of them are very charming. There's been there's been a lot. We do a lot of reading. We spend a lot of time reading books here. And and I'm amazed by how many really terrible children's books there are. And I'm amazed by how they accumulate in our house. And I don't remember buying them, and neither does John. And we think, where did that terrible book come from? And we have to kind of sneak it out of the room. But um, 
But by and large, I would say those have been, you know, some of the real highlights. Delightful. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, but really thank you for the work that you're doing. It's, um, I feel like you've approached really difficult things with a delicateness, if that's a word, and a tenderness that's really evident and respectful and... I just love it. I can't wait to read your next book. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for this lovely interview. But I'm thrilled to have met you, and I hope the project continues to go swimmingly for you. This is the end of my interview with Andrew Solomon. To learn more about Andrew or his work, you can check him out online at andrewsolomon.com or follow the link on parentingreimagined to farfromthetree.com. I would also highly recommend his TED Talk that you can find at TED.com. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting. 